Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Well, Ken, welcome to the Festival of Ideas. Thanks and, very much. Um, so we've just seen that little... That, that was from the documentary Versus. That was the trailer for the documentary Versus. And it gives, even in that couple of minutes, an indication of the fact that you don't mind hostility. You can cope with hostility. Um, public hostility, yes. Yeah. Um, personal hostility, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, Absolutely, because if, if, you, if you try to explore what's going on in the world, then um, those in power will be after you. Otherwise, if, 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 you, if, you, if you don't draw blood, then they don't care about you. So. so, I mean, you are a political being, and we can talk a little bit maybe later about those politics, but do you think of your films as political? Um, well, it, it, it's a dangerous label, I think, because if, if you label them as political, then they, they're into a category which, which tends to repel people. I mean, who wants to spend a Friday evening you know, watching hard politics when you've watched Newsnight all week? So, um, <laughs> so probably not. Um, but the, if, if you look at the way the world works, and if, if you try and tell stories about our daily experience, then people exist in a context. And the context is economic, and it's, it's within the, the framework of a, a social hierarchy, and it's about the possibilities and choices people have at different s stages in their lives, uh, and that reflects within the family. So this context is determined by politics. So in a sense, their choices and their possibilities are de determined by politics. So you have to have a view about that in order to know what stories to tell and how to tell them. So in that sense, they're, they're, they're based on a political analysis, well, view, an attitude, um, a, a trying to, to develop an understanding with you know, the people you work with. So in that sense, yes, they're political. But the, the interaction of people and the stories they tell, um, they've got to be human first. You know, they, they've got to... You've got to feel I'm watching real people, not, not political ciphers. But in terms of the effect of mm -hmm. the films, I mean, people, the, the shorthand things, people always say, Cathy Come Home, 1966, it, it, it brought about the creation of shelter and, and an appreciation of you know, homelessness as an issue. Um, mm -hmm. People would also say about I, Daniel Blake, that mm -hmm. some of you know that it drew attention to kind of the problems of the welfare system and, and benefits particularly. Do you think they have that direct relationship? Um, in some cases, yes. Um, I mean, in terms of the last one, um, it's not made a blind bit of difference. I mean, the, the, the government is as determined as ever to treat the most vulnerable people with, with a kind of palpable cruelty. And, and in, in a way, knowingly and in a way to, to show people, look, this is what waits for you if, if you don't support yourself. Whether you can, whether you can it's your fault or not. And, and that's there as a deterrent. Um, I mean, there's, 
Every week you hear stories of people who have, have either died when their benefits have been withdrawn or committed suicide or likewise. I mean, there was a story just recently. So, so yes, I mean, that, that, that one, it, it had a direct political implication, but the, but the, um, the effect it can have is often minimal. But does that, does that in any way detract from your, I mean, your energies in terms of making them? Because you, you must want to affect some kind of change with your films. Well, yes, absolutely. Well, I, I suppose it's... Um, you made a con contribution to, the, to consciousness, I suppose, or to, to, to the great public discourse, you know, the, the noise, the, the, the noise that we... public noise of what's going on and, and people's attitudes and to just to, to, to have a slight impact on that. Um, and I suppose also to, to encourage those who are fighting, you know, to, to encourage those who say, look, this is not acceptable, um, and to put a shoulder to that wheel. Um, she has to do all those things um, and help build an opposition, you know, and, yeah, and be directly involved if need be. Because I think it's a cop-out, you know. I mean, you often hear filmmakers or writers saying, well... Um, um, you know, I, I don't tell people what to think, you know, um, I'm above all that. And uh, it's, um, um, you know, we, we don't make political statements. And you think back to the 60s and the Committee of 100, mm -hmm. and it was full of artists and writers and film directors and theatre people, very active on the streets. And you look around now, you know, and there's not so many. And I think that's a pity. Because if, if, you, if you do engage in public... Art, for want of a better word, since we're where we are, um, then you have an obligation, I think, to, to be active and not just sit back and say, well, we'll wait for someone else. So are you telling people what to think, then? Um, I'm indicating a we, because like, you know it's a yeah. collective. We would indicate, like, here's another point of view. Here's, here's a question you might consider. Here's a situation that maybe has a, a subtext of questions and... Um, considerations and attitudes that is worth considering. Well, let's talk a bit about that collective, mm, the team, mm, because you work mm. you work with the writer Paul Laverty and, and producer Rebecca O'Brien and mm -hmm. a whole lot of other people. Mm, um, mm. How do you decide when there are potentially so many stories that you could do? How do you decide? What's the process that you go through? Um, well, it's... Um, it mainly comes out of the relationship with the writer. And um, you say, Paul, I've worked with Paul for a quarter of a century now. God help us. Um, <laughs> he had hair when we began. You know? um, and um, God, don't tell him us. Um, um, and, um, and Paul lives in Scotland and he lived in Spain for a long time and we were kind of constantly um, in touch and, you know, sending messages or speaking most days. And... And it's a, it's a long friendship, very close friendship, and, and a shared attitude, and a shared sense of humor, and a shared um, political perspective. Uh, the same things make us angry and, you know, and so on. So out of that comes one or two ideas that persist. And out of that, where maybe comes a story. Um, and then, then you have to evaluate it and say, does it, if we were to tell this story, does it 
say more than just the narrative and the characters? Does, does it have an implication that spreads wider? And if it does, then let's pursue it. And then, I mean, and at every stage you're trying to knock it down and say, well, maybe it's not worth telling. So you try and, you know, try and destroy it. And then if it survives that, then um, Paul will write a few characters and then we discuss about that. And if, if the inbuilt um, conflict between them will express or get to the heart of the story you want to tell, then, then Paul will write a first draft and then we knock it backwards and forwards, really. And what kind of research is involved? Because, I mean, it is mm-hmm. the very... It's the fact that, you know, the kind of granular realism, the mm-hmm. fact that you feel mm-hmm. that this is actually... Um, that you have been to food banks and seen what they're like, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. with Daniel Blake or whatever. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Um, well, usually, um, we do a bit of first scouting around together. Um, Paul then will do... Um, will go deeper into the research. Um, uh, because we've usually overlapped, actually. We've been really lucky. We've usually been finishing one film when Paul's been working on another one. So usually Paul's been doing, you know, digging into the subject while I've been finishing off another film, but that hasn't happened the last couple of years. Uh, but Paul will dig into it. Then we'll go round some of it together. And in the process of doing that, then, of course, you're talking about who the characters should be and, and what the narrative should be. Mm. And, that, and that's... The casting then comes relatively late on, does it? Um, well, the... I, 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 think, I think that the script is, mm. the, is, the, is the heart of the film and, and much undervalued, I think, by many filmmakers. Particularly, I think there's a heresy grown up that... To be a proper film director, you've got to write your own script, and I think that's a big heresy, because I think there's, there's I mean, you can learn to be a film director, you know, anyone can do it, but the, but the, but a writer has a talent that you you can't you can't teach. I mean, the ability just to capture the the truth of a, of someone just in a line of dialogue or two or three lines of dialogue. I mean, th- that I couldn't do that. Um, and I've worked with writers who can, three or four. I've been fantastically lucky. So the, the, the script is the heart of it. And when that's... I mean, I can edit a bit, that's fine. But the, so when we've chiselled it down to what we think the film might be, then you look for people who can bring it to life. And, and that's the second biggest um, task, really, because, because I think films can... A camera can see can see the pores of the skin, you know. It can see it can see behind your eyes. Um, it can see things that um, on stage maybe you don't see. So, so th- I think that acting in the film is very different to stage acting. In a sense, it will be a documentary about the person in front of the camera, and and in that you can you can often read um, social class. You can hear the nuance of a language, of a dialect, of the use of language. Um, you can see how a body stands naturally, how people eat. I mean, all those little details that, that are absolutely subconscious, but, but indicate, show that person. And, and I think what, what we try to do, and increasingly try to do, is just 
is, is just get as close as you can to say, this is that person. This is that person. They, 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 they know the job they're meant to be doing. They actually have lived that job. They, they've got a shorthand in, their, in, their, in how they behave that, that is beyond performance. And it, it's, I mean, it's, it's a tradition in cinema, you know. I mean, you, you, all, you all know. I mean, probably better than me. I mean, the, the old the Italian realism and all that. There, there's a long line of trying to do that, and I think there's a line of trying to do that in most art forms. Actually, there's an art in trying to. There's a, there's a tradition of trying to do that in painting, and just to get as close as you can to the nub of what you're trying to express. So, so that's what we try to do in casting: is find people who will not only bring the They've got to bring the depth of the feeling as well, but also have the, the kind of, just that sense that they are who they claim to be. And sometimes they will be very experienced actors. Sometimes yeah, they will have had yeah. no previous experience. Mm. But mm. the one thing, and I suppose um, just hearing Killian Murphy in that little clip there, mm. is that you will get, you will try and get your actors to position where their reactions are quite raw, about where, where mm, the technique mm, is mm. stripped away, mm, I suppose. Mm, and sometimes mm. that means springing surprises on them, or... Mm, mm. I mean, what's, if you like, the ethos of that? Um, well, the, 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 the reason for it... I mean, the ethos... I don't know about it, but, <laughs> but it's a tricky word. But, I mean, the reason for it is that surprise is the hardest to act. I mean, even with brilliant actors... Um, I mean, there was a film years ago we did with, with uh, Bob, Robert Carlyle um, where he had to discover a girl he was living with who had committed, trying to commit suicide in the bath. And um, I didn't tell him. He said, you know, she's in the flat, but you went, don't know exactly where she is. And uh, he tried one, two doors, and she wasn't there. And then we were filming him. And then he went into the bathroom, and she was in the bath, you know, with having cut her wrists. And, and his recoil was how you would recoil. Um, and then we did a second take, you know, just for safety. Um, and of course, he, he acted it very well because he's a very fine actor, but it wasn't quite the same. Um, and I think that, that moment of surprise, and there's, they're in most films, actually. Um, it's, it's got to be genuine. Otherwise, it doesn't have the, the, the horror or the shock or the comedy or whatever you want to compete you want to communicate, really. So that makes it almost like a kind of experiment in some ways, isn't it? Sort of um, psychological experiment. Well, you're flying by the seat of your pants. I yeah. mean, it can go wrong, you know? Yeah. It can go wrong. I mean, we did um, a, a film called Carla's Song about... Um, um, not Carla's Song. Um, uh, Bread and Roses. Um, about uh, janitors in Los Angeles, uh, cleaners, in office cleaners. And it was about two sisters, two Mexican sisters. And the one sister had come first to Los Angeles and she'd, um, she'd established herself. And then the second sister came and she also got... She, the older sister got her job as a cleaner. And then there was... The younger one was very active in a strike to get... Um, based on a real, a real strike to get um, decent wages and conditions. The older one told the management some of the people who'd been involved. So there was a big confrontation between the two sisters. The younger sister saying, how could you betray us? And the older sister then told the younger sister how she'd managed to get the job. 
and how she was able to pass money to the family. And she'd been prostitute on the border. And to get her job, the younger sister a job, she'd slept with the supervisor. And she said, you learn the hard way. And we had thought that when, and the younger sister didn't know all this backstory, so we filmed her response. And we thought that would split them up. And so Paul had written the end of the film, it's near the end of the film, Paul had written the end of the film where the younger sister went and stayed with someone else. In fact, it brought them together. And they just hugged each other. So we rewrote the end of the film. Mm. Because that was the truth. That was the truth. Yeah. Mm. I suspect a female writer might have, <laughs> might have possibly have guessed that. They might. Yes. They, they might. Yeah. They that's might. So but, but in a way, yeah. in the way the, the most valuable thing a director's got to work with is the actor's instinct. And so that's the reason we shoot in sequence and we don't rehearse the actual scenes. Because the closer an actor is to their instinct, and they're not thinking about it. it. It comes from the stomach, you know. It comes from their intuition. It just, just comes from how you are. And the closer they are to that, the truer their response. And that's what you want to film, isn't it, always, is the truth of that response. Mm. So uh, your new film will be premiering in Cannes um, very shortly. Uh, I know you can't give anything away about it much, except we know it's about the gig economy. And um, it's called... It's called Sorry We Missed You. Um, <laughs> and it's the notice the drivers push through your door, you know, if you've ordered online yeah. and um, you're not there. Um, and it's, it's, about, it's about a family, really. Um, it's about a family where both parents are working, uh, but struggling. Um, and the consequences of trying to juggle insecure work, zero hours, with family life and trying to, because it's a good functioning family. It's not like a family with inherent problems. So it's the story of that family really, and the kids and how they cope and the relationships between them. And do you see the gig economy as, as, as a fundamental shift in the way that we live now? Um, well, it's been coming a long time, yeah. hasn't it? I mean, when, when Margaret Thatcher destroyed the pits and closed down traditional industries and attacked the trade unions, and destroyed collective bargaining. It opened the way for employers to say, um, okay, we'll just have labor that you can turn on and off like a tap. Um, and we're living with the consequences. And so that, so in what they call it flexible working, which is fine if you're in a position to, um, um, you know, where you can work when you need to and not when you, when you don't want to. But if, if you're desperate, if you need the money and you need as, on low wages, then, and you have to work just when the boss says, come in and work. And when he says, go home, you don't get anything. So flexible, flexibility is fine for, for the employer. It's, it's not fine for if you're, for particularly on low wages, insecure work, insecure wages. And interestingly, the last, my brain's hopeless for figures now, but the, the, um, the last report on poverty I think three quarters of those in poverty are the working poor. They're not unemployed, they're working. So it's about that working poor. 
Um, and that's a choice, you know? That's what they want. That's how their economy works. It's based on degradation, humiliation, poverty, insecurity, pain. That's what it's based on. But I suppose there is a sort of minor mm. footnote to that, and, mm. and an irony is that actually, of course, gig economy predates... I mean, Thatcherism mm. may have contributed to certain elements, but it does predate that. And there is probably no industry that is more prone to it than the film industry. I mean, the film industry is one giant gig economist. Um, well, it, yes, but the, the film industry is... Um, the, the pay, at least, if for most people, not all, because there's a large, um, like, diaspora, isn't it, of, mm. of people who are partly working or not. But if you do work in the film industry, you get well paid, comparatively well paid. Um, but, yes, it, it's always been a... There was a big, um, when I first joined the union in the 60s, there was a big move against casualisation. Um, but it's complex because that's tied to the studio system and the studios are not necessarily very creative. So I think in the creative, I hate the word creative industries, it sounds, I just, <laughs> I just hate the word. But I mean, if you're doing things like making films, then... then it's different, but if you're if you're just in transport, say if you're if you're just in retail, you know if you're just doing essential functions in the NHS, then that's that shouldn't be casualised. Mm. Um, is it getting harder, easier to make films? Um, do you mean by becoming an octogenarian? <laughs> well, maybe that. <laughs> <laughs> or, or in general. <laughs> in general. In general. Okay, well, um, both. Um, I think, well, look, I think to do, be able to do the kind of work we've been, you know, extraordinarily fortunate to do, I think it is getting more difficult because, again... You know, industries, private industries tend to monopoly, as we know, and film production tends to monopoly. Um, they squeeze out independent cinemas, they squeeze out independent production. Um, they, um, the space for independent cinemas, to, uh, films to be shown, gets squeezed. So yes, it is, it is harder. Um, and, and the most distressing thing of that is to hear young filmmakers talking in terms of the market, you know, and I've got to find a space within the market, I've got to find a niche or whatever. And it's, instead of thinking, what are the stories that I have to tell? What are the images I want on screen? It's thinking about where's my place in the market? And I think that's absolutely destructive of imagination. Um, I did a, a little while ago, I did a, a conversation with, um, or it was a, a meeting, we were talking to students with somebody from um, the BFI. And um, before we went on, I said, I don't know what I'm going to say, do you? And she said, I'm, I'm going to say um, that to be a not just good enough to be a successful, a good director, you've got to be someone who knows uh, how to sell yourself. Um, so I said, good, I know what I'm going to say now. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the opposite. Um, <laughs> You've got to start with, you know, having something to say. Never mind, sell yourself. Uh, and and it was about it was about cinema as a market. And as long as we think in those terms, you'll have we'll have the films we deserve because they'll be packaged for the market, like hamburgers instead of a proper restaurant. <laughs> 
Yeah, but you've still got to have sharp elbows, though, haven't you? I mean, if you've got to make a space for yourself somehow, which is... Well, you need a team. You see, you don't... I mean, I don't have sharp elbows in that sense, but, I mean, and Rebecca O'Brien, the producer, doesn't have sharp elbows, but she's... And other producers I've worked with, like Tony Garnett and Sally, Sally Hibbin, um, they've been able to negotiate a space. Um, and... Um, and it, I don't think it's ever been to do with pushing. It's been just been to say, look, here's, here's some ideas, here's some possibilities. Will you support us? And you've had quite a lot of help in that from, from mm. European, you know. Yes, um, yeah. you've had a, and you've won the Palme d'Or twice, obviously, at, at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder mm-hmm. how you feel the possibility of, of Brexit and going, going forward is likely to affect filmmaking, I mean, either for you mm. or for... Anybody um, trying to make a film a bit like yours? Um, well, it can't have a... I mean, leaving the European Union can't have a good effect. Um, the, the co-production treaties predate the European... involvement um, in the European Union. So this film treaties will continue, you know, where you can do co-productions. But if... I mean, we, we have a good con- connection to Belgium, and we have Belgian film workers working on the film. Um, <coughs> they've worked in the camera department, they've worked in the, with the Sparks, and they're terrific, really terrific. And they, they bring a, a different attitude to cinema. They have a van where you hear Jacques Brel arriving, you know, so you know they're coming. And they provide chocolate at four o'clock every afternoon. So, I mean, it's a great, you know, it's a great contribution. Um, so so that's, that's good. And, um, and our best... Our best um, audiences have been in France and then Italy, um, Spain it was, and Germany and Europe. Um, I mean, when we did um, The Wind That Shakes the Bali, for example, um, they had, I think, about 350 prints in France, or maybe a few more, and we had 40 in Britain. Mm. We had 70 in Ireland, but 40 in Britain. So it's a massive Mm. disparity. and that's to do with, the, with their attitude to cinema. Um, so, so to lose that would, would be very, would be devastating. And, and I do wish that film directors and writers here would not look across the Atlantic so much, but would look to Europe. Because it's a much broader tradition of cinema. You know, you think of all the different European traditions, you know, Italian, French, Eastern Europe, Spanish, Scandinavian, German. I mean, Europe has a great tradition, varied tradition of filmmaking, and America is very narrow by comparison. But, I mean, whatever happens, if, if there is some kind of Brexit arrangement, it's not going to make it easier, is it? I mean, no, no, no. Because actually it could almost be, I was at a conference the other day about arts institutions planning for what might mm-hmm. happen after that, and it was more a case that the European institutions were saying... You know, it just might be a bit complicated to bring this production or that exhibition, or so maybe we'll mm, just keep mm, it. And it, it mm. might be the same with with film mm. productions as well, mightn't it? Yes, yes, it could well be. Uh, absolutely, I agree. So you have. Um, so I mean, how are you feeling generally about the uh, about the possibility? This whole this whole situation, this whole Brexit situation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm oh, sorry God. to have to. Bring yeah, sorry. Right. Like, you know. Well, I, I think it's. And I, I, I think we haven't had the real discussion, really. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the problems that people face, I mean, we've mentioned a bit about them um, up to now. I mean, um, insecurity at work, 
collapsing public services, destruction of the environment, um, a benefit system that punishes the most vulnerable, um, areas of the country that have been left behind when the old industries have shut and led to real anger. All these have happened while we're in the European Union. They've happened, they're with us now, and we are in the European Union. So we can't say the European Union will prevent that, but those who have pushed to leave want to exploit people even more. You know, the, the, the Tory bunch led by Rees Mogg, which is how I got this wounded shoulder. She was giving him a thumb, but I, wish, I, I only wish. I wish, I wish. But, um, um, but, but, but they want, to, they want a, a tougher exploitation. They want to do away with even the minimal protection that European off, Union offers to, for the environment and, and, and people at work. So it's a choice, a choice between exploitation and failure under the European Union or even greater exploitation and tougher outside. And that, that's, how it's, that's the choice we've been given. Whereas in fact, I mean, I think we need, I think Yanis Varoufakis speaks very well on this. We need to, to, to have a, a relationship with people, with our neighbors in Europe but with a different basis. It's not based on a club for big business. It's based on, on mutual support, um, planned economy, common ownership, and, and people working together on a basis of equality, not on the basis of poor wages on one side leading to immigration to another side to, 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 to because they can earn more money and send money back. It's got to be on the basis of equality. And there's been no movement within Europe towards that equality. So I think it's, it's a different European Union. But that discussion we haven't had, and that's been our failure. And the rage that I think people feel is based on the whole neoliberal... I mean, I'm being on a rant now. But I mean, <laughs> the, the anger people feel that has led to this... I mean, you see it everywhere. But we talked about it a bit earlier. The, the sense of rage in, in, among people is based on that palpable failure to give us lives of dignity and security and able to plan the future and not get into debt and be, have public services that work for us. You know, compared to 45 after the war, we had a proper health service. But and, and that anger... Um, has been generated during the, our time in the mm. EU. But you were instrumental in the setting up of, of the Left Unity Party, and then mm -hmm. Jeremy Corbyn becomes leader of the Labour Party, and, mm -hmm. and you move behind, you're a supporter mm. of Jeremy Corbyn. Are you happy with him as a leader of the opposition? Um, well, I think, I think Jeremy represents a programme which is the beginnings of, a, of the transformation of the society we have in the interests of, of our collective interest and based on the beginnings of a society based on common ownership, proper public services where everyone is employed directly, international law as the guidance of our foreign policy, protection of the environment at the centre of everything we do. Now that's the programme that he and John MacDonald have stood on to begin with and put in the manifesto for the last election and, and have tried to develop. But the, I mean, everyone has their qualities, you know, and, and Jeremy has very strong qualities and has been on the right side of every major issue 
in the time he's been in politics, and I'd soon have someone who was on the right side, maybe, maybe not necessarily as agile in jungle warfare as some politicians, but nevertheless a man of principle. So very happy with that. If the team around him, because it's a team effort like making films, the team around him should be able to, together, cover every quality that's needed. Um, and that, that's what the Labour Party should be working to. But the, destruction, the, the attempted destruction of him by many MPs and the smear campaigns and the attacks are entirely predictable because if, if they were to carry the programme out, they'd threaten power. So you, we can expect that. But I think many Labour supporters are wishing that there would be some kind of clearer vision of what Labour represents as an opposition. It seems that, you know, that, that, that Labour seems to get sidetracked. And I mean, we don't have particularly clear vision of what, for example, policy on the environment might be. I mean, I, I see these are all longer term goals, but it's just sort of at the moment, people would like to know what exactly it, the opposition stands for. I think it's very clear. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you won't get it on Newsnight, I know. And listening to, to their interrogations. But, I mean, he makes speeches all over the place. Well, why, why shouldn't... I mean, I'm not... I don't know no, if he's no, no, but, no, no, um, but why shouldn't BBC? you get it on Newsnight? Because, because I mean, if people be, can articulate it, why wouldn't it be there? Be, because the, the, their agenda is, is somewhere else. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn made a speech a few weeks ago in Spain talking about the need for European unity on the left. Not reported. Mm. They've made speeches up and down. John McDonald toured the country talking about a programme for regional redevelopment, not reported. For, for banks, local banks, with the power to, in, um, publicly funded, with the power to invest in local industries, sustainable industries, green industries, not reported. There's a whole programme out there which they work, which they, they, they presented in the manifesto and they developed since, not reported. Um, an end to punitive financial sanctions, um, um, collective bargaining at work, everyone with the right to join a trade union and collective bargaining, um, and unions to be properly recognised, not reported. That will put an end to a lot of this, to the, um, you know, what we call the gig economy um, difficulties, uh, the right to sick pay, the right to holiday pay, not reported. So it's there. Um, Maybe, yes, maybe there are criticisms that they should, even when um, they should go on uh, the Today programme, ignore John Humphreys and make a statement. Mm. Okay, maybe well, they, they should. Well, they wouldn't be the first people to do that. I mean, no, you know, but maybe they that. should. But it, it's, I think you have to recognise that the, the, the press and the broadcasters have an agenda which is unremittingly hostile. I mean, there was a discussion on Newsnight. I mean, I'm I, sorry to keep going on this, but it's my daily penance. Um, they, they, some of you may have seen it. They discussed uh, Christ, what was it? But um, there were two Tories and one very good young woman who put an opposition point of view. It was just two to one. Why? Why? Mm. Why? Yeah. Okay. It doesn't. I mean, you could equally say um, that Ed Miliband was on the other night talking about you know the environment and the crisis for that, and actually got a very favourable. You know, the, the, two two of the three people. Ed, the Ed, other Ed way? Miliband. Ed Miliband. Okay. Well. Yes. And and when he was Labour leader, what reception did he get? And and also he wasn't the threat that, that Corbyn and Macdonald are because they would take away power from capital 
Ed Miliband never had that on his agenda. However, local elections, I know we haven't got all the results in yet. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, would expect, you would expect in the local elections, mid-term local elections, for there to be a big swing towards Labour. No, not in this circumstance, certainly not, because the propaganda has been so intense from... Um, from um, on every front. Well, it hasn't done... I mean, the Tories obviously have done really badly in the yes. local elections. Yes. So, OK, so the propaganda is against... So who, who does the media favour? Well, who do you... I, you tell me. Farage gets massive coverage. Yeah, well, they haven't done very well either. I mean, so, so well, the people who have done well have Wait for the in. European election. Um, there's, there's a very That's warm response for Change UK and a very warm response um, for the, for the, for the mm. centrists because that's what, the me that's what the broadcasters want to see in power. That's, they, are, they are an arm of the state, the BBC. They are, I mean, during the... I mean, how far back do we go? I mean, the miners' strike, the story was picket line violence. We now know the story was police violence. We now know that was the story. Never reported. Never oh, reported. Oh, oh, come on. Not, no, absolutely not. No, I challenge you. I remember Kate Aidy talking, and a very respected journalist, at the time of all grief, talking about picket line violence. The BBC swapped two shots that showed, first of all, in reality, the police charged the miners, and then the miners struggled back. They swapped it. So the miners throwing things, then the police charged. Yeah. Absolute, absolute corrupt that reporting. That may have happened, but it did I started happen. It my... It did happen. Well, no, it may not. I started my BBC career mm -hmm. working on The World at One as a mm. reporter. I was on the phone to Arthur Scargill mm. every day, and we mm. reported on that, you know, mm. perceived police violence or whatever it was at the time. Mm. That, it's not a question that it was a systematic... Be it can't have been. It I'm can't afraid have been. it is. I'm afraid it is. Well, OK. I'm afraid it is. All right. It's systematic. And, 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 I mean, on, on the, the Brexit issue, the left position is not put, has never been put. Although I've been at meetings where it's been put, I've heard Jeremy Corbyn put it, I've heard John MacDonald put it, I've heard Yanis Varoufakis put it, I've not heard it put as the main choice in, in, on, the, in, um, on, the, on the mass media. Well, other countries don't have the BBC, um, but they do still have this complete fracturing of where the vote is going, don't they? I mean, we're seeing this across from Spain. You, Macron is, was, released, it was um, elected on issues rather than because, you know, he was a kind of centrist with issues, as it were. Um, it does seem to be a thing that's going across Western Europe. Um, well, as I say, there's the, the anger that arises. Where does the anger come from? I would argue the anger comes from 40, 50 years of neoliberalism of the downgrading of collective responsibility, uh, a collective society where everyone has a place and everyone has rights to, to the exploitation of labor in the interest of big business. That generates anger. Where does the anger go? If there isn't a, a coherent left perspective, it goes to the far right. It happened in Germany, obviously before the war, and in Italy, and it's happened now. The only place it didn't happen at the last election was here, because we had a serious left leader in, on, on, in the Labour Party. And they did far better than was expected, because they discussed the public, the, the, our, our, um, 
uh, our public services. They discussed the nature of work. They discussed reinvesting in, in the regions. And that was popular. Um, in France, they haven't had that. And so they've got a kind of Blairite figure who is now very unpopular, or the far right. Um, in Spain, um, sadly, Podemos has, seems to be fallen by the wayside because of internal struggles. And so you have Vox. Um, in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland. Um, it's, so yes, it's a big issue. But where does the anger come from? That's the question. Well, we are, I'm sorry, we are actually now out of time, so I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we've demonstrated today that we're not entirely a popcorn culture. I think you've given Absolutely. us solid fare here. Okay. So. Okay. Um, and we wish you well for, for the trip to Cannes. Okay, and, um, Francine, before yes. you finish, can I say one thing? What's that? These seem dark times, right? Yeah. But keep fighting, because if we yeah. don't, if we don't, we're defeated, but we've got to keep fighting. Oh, we Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on. <laughs>